Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting recent work in natural language processing. This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Today, our guest is Roy Reichhardt. Um, Roy is uh, an assistant professor at Technion Institute in Israel. He's interested in a variety of topics in NLP and machine learning, especially learning with little or no direct human supervision. The paper we're discussing today asks how do we try how do we draw conclusions when we compare different methods on multiple data sets. Uh, so the title of the paper is replicability analysis for natural natural language processing testing significance with multiple data sets. It's accepted uh, for publication at TACL 2017. The authors are Rotem Jor, Gili Bomer, Marina Bogomolov, and Roy Reichert. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, hi. Very nice to be here. Thank you. Um, so the paper uh, challenges the standard practice of reporting results in the NLP community and proposes a new framework for for doing replicability analysis. Could you start by telling us uh, the difference uh, that you you mentioned in the paper between replicability analysis and reproducibility? Because that's kind of something that's not very uh, that we don't talk about very often in NLP. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, it's definitely not something that we talk about very often. Um, so I think that what we were mostly worried about is that there is something inherent in language. I mean, the, the multiple domains and languages are inherent to natural language. So you would expect um, a good researcher that develops a new algorithm to compare their algorithms across many domains and many languages. And this is something um, that, okay, and of course to draw decent, uh, to draw the right conclusions from these comparisons. And this is something that is uh, known in the statistical literature as uh, replicability analysis, even though I agree that as someone that doesn't come from a statistical background, it wasn't necessarily the best term, at least for my intuition. Uh, but this is what the, the, this is, let's say, the standard in the statistical literature, and at least to the best of our knowledge. And reproducibility is more about taking a well-known algorithm and reproducing its results in a very, um, in a ve- in a well-defined setup. Um, so, of course, we in this paper we were we were we were worried about the first problem, and not the second. Right. So, hypothesis testing is is, a, is an established method. Uh, many NLP researchers use it to uh, to establish credibility of the results. Uh, so, yeah. uh, why why do you think uh, that this is not uh, sufficient? So the thing is, and the, the thing that we were concerned about in this paper was not the, the the checking for statistical significance, which is, like you say, something that we we do a, quite a lot in NLP. By the way, um, during the work on the paper, we were we 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 found out that in different papers, um, people do not necessarily use the right significance test. But this is another issue. And we intend maybe to write a survey paper about that for ACL. But given that in many papers, the right statistical significance test is used, so that was not 
what we were worried about. We were worried about the question of, suppose that you compare two algorithms on 10 or 20 or 30 data sets, which for many problems now is quite, it's quite standard. Um, what conclusions can you draw from that? And naturally, I mean, and I think that this is something that many people are, were, are well aware of, if you just count the number of data sets for which you get a p-value below a predefined um, threshold, this is not something statistically valid. And this is some, it's, it's very easy to see that, right? So the question was what you, re what you should really do. And that was the main problem that we address in this paper. Can you uh, give uh, just a simple example for why that isn't statistically valid for people who haven't read the paper yet? Yeah, sure, of course. So the thing is that um, um, let's, I mean, let, let's take a simple uh, toy example, which we give in the paper. Um, suppose that you have um, 100 data sets, okay? And let's say that you assume independence between these data sets. I mean, I'm, of course, I'm keeping it simple, but I think that, for example, if you consider multiple languages, it makes sense to assume independence. Right? Now, suppose that your probability to do a type one error, rejecting the null hypothesis, even though it's true, even though the algorithms perform similarly, you reject the null hypothesis and get to the conclusion that on this specific data set, they don't perform similarly, okay? So let's say that the, the, the probability for that, which is, it's well known as alpha, is let's say 0 0.5, 0 0.05, right? Or 0.05. So then your probability to make at least one error, for example, to get to the conclusion that one algorithm is better than the other in 51 data sets instead of 50, okay? Is very, very close to one. Now, of course, if you increase the number of errors, the probability becomes lower. But still, the probabilities are quite high if you make this independence assumption, which quite often is true. And this problem was, uh, it's, it's, it, it's a very well-known problem in many other uh, scientific disciplines. Um, it was, I mean, I think that biologists were uh, are very, or maybe were very worried about it uh, because it's something that they, you know, they, 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 they dealt with. But, you know, you hear it from psychologists and from many other people that do experimental work. So I've seen a bunch of papers, or at least a few papers, that try to be smart about this, and they mention something called the Bonferroni correction. And yeah. so I think this is where you just divide the alpha value yeah. by the number of tests that you do so that you make the expected yeah. number of errors still work out right. So is this yeah. sufficient? I, I, so this is related to what you did. Uh, is that good enough? Yeah, yeah. So, to be honest, it's related only in the name. I mean, because one of the methods we employ is called the Bonferroni method or the Bonferroni criterion or, you know, different names, but it's just the same Bonferroni, but not the same math. Okay. And, and it's true. This is, this is, you know, the, this is definitely the first thing that comes to mind, and it makes lots of sense to, to divide the alpha by, for example, by n, the number of data sets. The problem with that is what we what is called in the statistical literature the power of the test. The power of the test means that when you should reject the null hypothesis, you want to do that. 
right? So if, for example, let's take the previous example, if your alpha is 0.05 and you divide it by 100, so each data set that you count as a case where one algorithm outperforms the other, you should get a p-value below 0 0.05 divided by 100, right? And this will rarely happen. So it's a good trick, but it really it really depends on the number of data sets you have and and you know your 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 con the confidence that you require. So in with many data sets, it's just it it just doesn't work. So what's your solution to this problem? Okay, so the solution, you know, I, I don't want to get into you know all the fine grained details and all that, but the idea is is quite simple. Is I mean the, the main idea is quite simple. The main idea is say the following. When you have, let's say, 100 data sets, so you have a list of 100 null hypotheses, right? And you can think of, uh, so, so, so the, you know, you have these probabilities of um, rejecting or accepting, let's say, U of these data sets, or 1 minus U, we use the, the, the letter U there. And then um, you also have the probability of uh, making a certain number of errors when you do that. And it turns out that there are many methods. I mean, I, I wouldn't say many, many, but there are a number of methods in the statistical literature that can do two things that, I th that we, we thought can be important for, for NLP. So they can do the following. They can bound, upper bound, the probability to make a type one error meaning the probability to reject the null hypothesis when it's true, when it's, when, it's, when it's actually holds. And at the same time, they keep the power of the method as high as possible. And for us, the main question was, which of these methods to choose? Because there are a number of them. Maybe the most the most well known one is uh, FDR, false discovery rate, uh, which is used quite a lot in biology. And we chose the Fisher uh, method and the Bonferroni method um, from one main reason. And to be honest, I think this is a point where I would expect the community maybe to come up with better solutions. And this, um, and, but maybe not. I mean, it's hard to tell. I mean, it's it's subject for research. And the the thing is that we assume that we don't, we cannot model the dependency between different NLP datasets. So, for example, I can maybe say that if I have a past corpus in Greek and a past corpus in Arabic, they are in some sense independent, but if I take two samples, I don't know, let's say the World Trade Journal from the 80s and the World Trade Journal from the 90s, it, it makes sense that there is some dependency that holds between them, but I don't know how to model it. So the Fisher method assumes that there is no dependency between the datasets. And this 
quite straightforwardly holds for, for example, for multiple languages. And the Monferroni method, yeah. In the that, Monferroni method, sorry, yeah, sorry. Sorry, sorry, do you think that's true even for, say, I don't know, Spanish and French or languages that are really close? Uh, exactly, exactly. This is, it's, it's a very good question. It's a very good question. And this is exactly why I said that, and we wrote that very explicitly in different parts of the paper, that we expect the community, you know, maybe it will be us, I don't know, but we expect the community to take the next step. And we think that, you know, these are good methods as long as we make this assumption that there is either a dependency or not. And then, you know, you can use the Fisher method when you, when you assume independence, Monferroni when you assume dependence. Fine. Okay. But, yeah. So, uh, it's probably, you probably don't want to go too much into the math. Uh, the Fisher method involves like a, a formula that has some chi-squared stuff. Uh, the Bonferroni method seemed a little more easy to explain intuitively. Uh, do you want to give a stab at giving, so like the Bonferroni correction that some people may have, may have read in previous papers, just dividing by the total number of experiments. And this method that you propose in your paper is similar. Do you want to give an, an intuitive ex explanation for that? I think that it's. Um, I think that I think that I, I would agree with you when it comes to the Holmes procedure. I mean, in the paper we we actually address two different problems, right? One is counting the number of datasets, and the other is identifying the the, the, the specific data sets where the where the null hypothesis should be rejected, right? So the the Holmes procedure is the procedure that we we propose to use in NLP. Um, for the identification question, right? So it's true that you know when you look on the, in the on the simple algorithm that we give for the uh, computation of the of 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 the Bonferro of of the Horn procedure, it looks very similar to the Bonferroni uh, correction. Even though you can see that you definitely don't need to divide by n. Which makes everything, you know, much more. Uh, you know, it, it makes it makes the, the power of the test. Um, it, it makes the test much much more powerful. And this is this is important. And um, when when you go to the counting question, um, you can see that you can actually be much more liberal and let um, your methods um, I, I count or it. It's count, it count, right? I mean, count, count a much, or maybe count many more cases when actually you have an effect. And this is, I think, it's 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 a very big difference from from the Bonferroni correction. Okay, yeah. Do you want to then explain what what these two questions are? Like, what exactly do you mean by this count question and the identification question? I don't think we've covered that yet. Of course. So actually, there is something here that is um, maybe a little bit um, counterintuitive. Um, when you come to to you know, so when, when you when you do your hundred um, comparisons, um, you can ask two questions. One is very general. I did um, hundred comparisons, and I want to know in how many cases um, does algorithm one um, or is algorithm one doing better than algorithm two? This is a very straightforward question. But then comes the question of, I want to identify those, for example, languages, right? So, I mean, if, if, I, if I go back to your previous question, 
about um, um, French and Spanish, um, it's, there is a difference between a case where I say algorithm one is better than algorithm two from French and Spanish and I don't know, maybe English and Italian, you know, and different Roman languages, or if it's for English and Chinese. Right, if it's for English and Chinese and not from Spanish, maybe I'll you know I'll be a little bit confused. Why, why is why is it like that? So, of course, the the identification question gives more information, right? So we so so in, in on, on the one hand, it may it may it may sound a little bit counterintuitive that you get different answers to these questions, but when you consider the fact that you get more information from this from from the ident identification question um, it makes maybe more sense that you that that that, that if you count those num those languages for in our example if you count those languages that you identify very often the number that you'll get will be lower than the number that you get in the in the answer for the counting question, because the counting question, uh, um, the answer to the counting question tells you that there are 50 languages where the effect holds, but the identification question tells you exactly for which language, for which languages the effect holds, and it's it's a different thing. I see. So, uh, I think. Let me let me try to give an intuitive explanation for this home procedure for the identification question because I think there's a really nice yeah. intuitive explanation and you can tell me if I got this right. Um, so you order the p-values. Say you did 100 experiments. You order the p-values that you got from smallest to biggest, and you evaluate the lowest p-value by dividing alpha by n, which is essentially the same thing as the Bonferroni correction, and you evaluate yeah. the highest p-value just on your original alpha, and you have a, like yeah. a, a straight, um, you just decrease the denominator uh, as you go from the smallest to the biggest. And yeah. that's it. So it's like, it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's not as strict as the Bonferroni correction, but it's actually statistically valid and it's more powerful because you're not dividing everything by n. Is this fair? Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a fair explanation. I just, there is one thing that I, that I think is important to consider here, that the Horn procedure it only it's on it only relevant for the cases where you know that there are dependencies between the datasets. I mean, of course, I mean you can use it when you consider datasets to be independent, but then you lose power of the method. So, what happens is that let's say let's say that for different languages we say that the the the, the datasets are independent. Of course, it's not hundred percent true, right? But if you have this case, you will get different answers for the um, for the counting question, because this this question, the answer to this question is based on the Fisher method, and a different answer to the a different answer to the identification question. I mean, if you count those languages that you identify, you will get a different answer. While if you assume that there are dependencies, the Horn procedure and the Bonferroni method for I mean the Bonferroni for counting and the Horn for identification will give you the same answer. So I mean, there are you know there are there are some issues here, right? I mean, it's it's intricate, but and this is maybe one of the reasons that we do call 
for you know for maybe maybe a simpler method maybe a more complicated method that that will consider the the, the dependencies but we consider this to be a, a first necessary step towards uh, the solution of these problems okay so how um, what can we draw uh, as conclusions from the results that uh, from the experiments that you provided in the paper uh, comparing the different uh, methods Okay, so in the paper we we try to experiment with with a relatively large number of applications. We know we, we had only ten pages, right? So, but but we had um, four different applications, and these applications had different um, evaluation measures. This that was also something that was important for us, right? I mean, we had accuracy, we had F score, we had correlations, different evaluation measures, different statistical significance tests. But in all cases, we try to be, you know, multi-domain, multilingual. The cases where you would expect multiplicity in NLP, and I think that we had two main conclusions. One was that when you expect or when you assume independence between the datasets. For example, in multilingual cases, if you just count those p-values below the, um, you know, below the alpha, the alpha number or the alpha threshold, um, you will be too optimistic. So in those cases, we should be more strict. On the other end, and that was maybe, maybe a bit surprising for us. In those cases where we, when when there are probably dependencies, so that so just this very simple erroneous count, counting of those cases where the p-value is below alpha, were actually too strict. So you know when we came to this uh, research, we assumed that we will that the the, the, the phenomenon we, we are going to see. Is that in many cases people get too optimistic um, evaluations, but actually that was not what we saw. In some cases, in those cases when you assume that the datasets are independent, yeah, they, they were too optimistic. But when you would assume that the datasets are um, are dependent the conclusions were actually too strict and you could you could come up with more cases where the effect holds so it goes both ways that's interesting this makes me a little bit nervous because how do i know if my data sets are independent or not because like with with the bonferroni method versus with the fisher method um, I'm looking at the, the multilingual part of speech tagging result where just counting the alpha values gives you 11 um, data sets languages where one method outperforms the other. But with the Bonferroni method, you get six, and with the Fisher method, you get 16. So if I assume they're dependent, I lose power, but if I assume they're independent, I gain power. So how do I know which, assent which assumption is correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. This is, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'll, I'll not try to convince you that it's simple. But it's a good question. Yeah. But you know, it's it's part of the deal in statistics, right? I mean, we have to do we have to do these assumptions. Um, it's true when we apply statistical significance tests. You know, maybe it's it's also I think that part of this um, part of the answer to your question will come from 
the standard practice. I mean, if if the community adopt these methods, which of course encourage everyone to do, um, the, we, the people will get those cases that under you know one assumption you get six, under another assumption you get sixteen. And the question is how how we can, I mean we'll have to you know this is also some kind of a conclusion right and you know I think that in our field which is very much uh, engineering driven and from good reasons right I mean we develop uh, applications that change the world I mean uh, it's it's a good thing um, I think that sometimes it's hard to 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 get to to, to work with such conclusions but. In other fields like biology, uh, when you know when it's when you you perform an experiment and it's it's not going you know to to the big machine that understands life or something like that, um, of course you see that all the time in papers. So I don't know. Maybe this will be part of the ablation analysis. Maybe we want to have one number, but we also want to have something more like a more general discussion or more in-depth discussion? It's a good question. I'm confused too. <laughs> so um, the, this makes me think of an, a related point. Um, I've seen some papers recently. Uh, I'm thinking of one from EMNLP that uh, was trying to reproduce a particular named entity recognition result. There's also a paper about trying to decide which reinforcement learning methods were good. Both of these looked at uh, essentially what is training variance. So it's repeated experiments, mm -hmm. um, a, a kind of replicability, or repro reproducibility, but slightly different from what you're saying. But the, the conclusion of these papers was uh, if there, there is variance in training neural nets just due to the random seat, because these are nonlinear, non-convex optimization problems that are very hard. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And what's typical, especially when you look at leaderboards, is I, the the researcher will sample from this training distribution and report the max. But mm -hmm. but that can be really misleading because there's actually a distribution here. Um, mm -hmm. do, does this work the, the, in your paper give us any insight into solving this issue? Mm -hmm. So, uh, to, to be honest, one, one thing to remember, I think, you know, they say that, um, we hear it, let's see, we hear it all the time, right, that uh, the, the, we invent research uh, every few years we, we invent uh, everything from scratch, right? And this problem, which is, of course, it happens with, N, with uh, neural networks, and of course, it has to be with non-convex optimization and all that, but we had that a few years ago with Bayesian methods, right? I mean, we had the hyperparameters, and people reported the, be the best uh, set of hyperparameters. And then at some point before neural networks took over, I started to see papers with the, the median. But, but most of the results with, with, the, with the best set of hyperparameters. So I remember that my first work was on active learning for parsing. And there the, um, the order of the examples in the pool was very significant. And I didn't know what to do. And I ended up, um, you know, it was my first work as a PhD student. I ended up averaging over 100 cases. But of course, the, the variance was, was very big. So, yeah, so, so, so I think that, you know, if you want to take our method and, and apply it to this case, to, to, to this issue, you can do that, right? And you can restart your model with, I think in one of these papers, it was 5,000 cases or something like that. Mm -hmm. And you can take these 5,000 um, cases and, and um, employ our, our tests, right? I mean, if it's 5,000, I would also consider FDR, but, you know, 
I, it's, 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 you know, it's, you can do that. And then the numbers will tell you what happens, right? I mean, you may find out that you are better in only a very small fraction of the cases, or if you compare algorithm A to algorithm B, or vice versa, you get the same numbers, and so on and so forth. Right? But I agree that I mean I, I'm not sure that they, I'm not sure that it's it's really the same problem. Okay. I think that I would, um, yeah, I think that I would go more to the solutions that they propose in the paper. One of the papers, I think, talk about distribution of, uh, of uh, considering the distribution of numbers and not, and not, you know, one specific number. And I think this it's more straightforward. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I review, I've reviewed lots of papers that don't even report any amount of statistical significance and just say, oh, hey, we evaluated this once on the leaderboard and we got the max. And I, I think... These other papers and your paper are, do a good job at pointing out these issues that if we really want to make statistically valid conclusions, we really need to be careful about what exactly we're reporting. So thanks for doing this work. Yeah, um, thank you. I, I just want to, to maybe to add one 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 comment. I think that another thing that can come up, another positive effect that can come up from this line of work on replicability and different, you know, better evaluation, but maybe for this conversation, specifically from replicability, that one thing that you see in the, in the you know, in recent years is that you, we have many data sets and for every problem, right? For example, word embeddings, you have many, many data sets, right? Or you, you have all these semi-val data sets for different tasks and so on and so forth. And then you see a paper, you, you review a paper and the paper reports very good results on three data sets. Right now, you have no way to know if those were the three data sets the authors take and they just happen to get very good results. And now they wrote a paper and they send it for publication, or if they tried on 300 cases and they just report on, on three. Right. Right. Now, right now, if you don't have means for summarizing the results, you can't really ask anyone to evaluate on 300 data sets, right? I mean, because you, you can't, what, what, what are you going to have? A three pages table for, you know, the just compare 300 cases. You can't really do that, right? But if you look on table one in our paper, you know, and you, we just report those K Bonferroni and K Fisher um, estimates. So, right, you have to know if it's dependent or independent. And if you have insight into the, the nature of dependency, maybe you can come up with better numbers, fine. But if you are willing to take this risk of making this assumption, you can summarize a very large number of experiments with one table. And this can, this can lead to a better standardization of experiments in, uh, in our field. And I, th I think this, this can be an important contribution here. Yeah, I agree. Thank you very much for recording us, and uh, yeah, I hope uh, the community will start uh, using some of these methods. Thank you very much for inviting me.